Today we conclude our series on anxiety, and one of the amazing things as we have walked through the Bible's teaching on anxiety is just how many passages there are dealing with this particular issue. I'm amazed by it, and I think one of the reasons why that the Bible so often talks about the issue of anxiety is because God knew in His sovereign wisdom and His goodness how often we as His children living in a fallen world would deal with this particular issue, would deal with anxiety. It would be a regular situation for us that we would need to go back to the passage to remind ourselves to cast all of our cares on Jesus because He cares for us. I don't know about you, but there, uh, I haven't just been able to do it one time in my life where I, when I was five years ago, I cast all my cares on Jesus and I haven't had a care to cast on Him since. <laughs> Anybody like that? <laughs> Not a chance. In fact, the way it usually goes is that, you know, at 6 o'clock this morning, I cast my cares on him, and then at 7 o'clock, I had new cares that I needed to again cast on him. Anybody there with me on that? Oh, yeah. I think we all have that continual, as life progresses, we understand casting our cares on him is a, instead of stewing on them, is a continual present act in our lives. And that brings us to this final sermon on anxiety. Next week, we will continue pick up in, picking up our series on the book of Matthew with chapter 23. But what I want to talk to you about today is a particular anxiety. And that is the anxiety of comparison. The anxiety of comparison. Now, what is the anxiety of comparison? The anxiety of comparison is a fear instigated by comparing your circumstances with others. It's a fear or an anxiety or a worry or a, or a consuming thought of stewing over how your circumstances may not be as good. Or you may not have progressed as far as others have. Or why is it so difficult and challenging to follow God? When I look at others around me who do not follow God, who do not care about Christ, who do not care about the kingdom, and it seems sometimes that their lives are easier that it seems sometimes that they are more blessed, have it more together, don't get sick as often, don't struggle as much as I do. The anxiety of comparison often leads to what some have called FOMO, or the fear of missing out. If I follow God, and I give my life to Jesus, am I missing out compared to what others are experiencing. It's a common temptation and can often lead to a sense of resentment, resentment towards God, resentment towards others. Why is it that this has happened to me? And can even lead you to the pathway of bitterness in your soul. Why did it turn out this way? And here in this passage, we have a psalmist, Asaph, the Israelite drummer, who is exposing his heart to us, is walking us through this particular trial in his life when he is, he is struggling with this anxiety of comparison. 
when he's one who I follow, I follow God and I do everything that I can. I've tried to do things according to his word. And yet sometimes I look at the way everybody else lives. Sometimes I, I look at the way everybody else has it. And it seems like it would be easier if I just checked out. If I just checked out from following God. So how do you, how do you work through that? How do you, how do you process when you are experiencing the anxiety of comparison. Now, thankfully, God knew that we would struggle with this at times in our lives, and He, in His goodness, has given us Psalm 73 to walk us through it. So there's three aspects that I want you to see in this psalm of how to deal with the anxiety of comparison. So three points, and then like a good preacher, the last point will have multiple subpoints. all right? <laughs> all right, here we go. Number one is this. How do you deal with this anxiety of comparison? Asaph, drummer, teach us today. Number one is this. Build your life on rock-solid truth that withstands the storms of suffering and doubt. Build your life on rock-solid truth that withstands the storms of suffering and doubt. Anxiety can sometimes come upon you like an unexpected storm, like a, like, a, like a tornado that just drops out of the sky at a particular moment in your life. You're having what seems to be an average, a pretty good day, or at least a mediocre day, and then all of a sudden, boom, you are enduring suffering. Or you hear news that, that just rocks your soul. Or perhaps you've been, your soul has been rocked and you see others who seem to have it better than you. How is it that you deal with this? The psalmist begins this passage by reminding himself of rock-solid truth in his soul before he walks and processes through this anxiety of comparison. In verse 1 he says this, God is indeed good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Rock-solid truth that guides him in the midst of his questioning, in the midst of his suffering. In this passage, he's asking himself the question, shouldn't non-Christians be miserable? Shouldn't they at least be more miserable than me? <laughs> and he's struggling with that question and reality. Sometimes the storm comes upon us suddenly. Sometimes the anxiety builds up over time as there is a distinction between the way you thought life should turn out or your plans or your visions for the way that life should turn out. I thought that it should turn out like this and it doesn't go that direction. It ends up going a different direction and that gap between expectation and reality, what you thought would the way things would turn out and the way things actually have turned out, that gap causes this sense of comparison to well up within your soul and you wonder what happened how did i get to this place it begins with a small comparison and sometimes can grow from there i haven't achieved as much as someone else what truth do you hold on to in those moments the psalmist begins with reminding himself of the character of God. 
He reminds himself in a world of constant change, in a world where even within his own soul, his emotions are constantly changing and whirling within him. He reminds himself of rock-solid truth about the character of God. God is good. And there are times in your lives when, when everything is going crazy and there's a difference between expectation and reality that you have to hold on to rock-solid, unchanging realities. And this is one that you should hold on to. God is good. Now, this side of the cross we can update. He says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We on this side of the cross can say, you know what? God is not only good to Israel, but he's God, God is good to us whom he has engrafted into the vine in Christ. Christ. Those of us whom through Christ, through faith in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross and through the resurrection, through faith in him, he has called us into his family, into his marvelous light. And so therefore, God is good. He is good to those who are pure in heart. And it's not because I am pure in heart. It's because through faith in Jesus Christ and him paying for my sins, taking all of my sins away and giving me his righteousness, that's how I am pure in heart. And we remind ourselves of this glorious truth, this wonderful reality. God is good. It's important for you. Now, in the good times, before you go through these times of anxiety and these particular temptations, is that you remind yourself of the character of God. Rock solid truth that will hold fast in the storm. God is good. God is loving. God is sovereign. He is love. He is holy. He is just. He is gracious. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's, he's all wise. And this will help you to endure the anxiety of comparison. Point number two, guard your heart from envying the temporary prosperity of the godless. Guard your heart from envying the temporary prosperity of the godless. Beginning in verse 2, Asaph describes a situation where my feet almost slipped. He almost slid down a slippery slope away from God, away from faith, away from faithfulness. He was enduring a suffering in his life. We don't know what that suffering was, but it compared to the world, it seemed like, why is it that they have it so good? And why is my life so bad? He fell into a moment of envy when he descended into the anxiety of comparison. And it's as if he were saying, where is the sovereign righteous God when I am floundering in mediocrity at best or suffering at worst when the drug dealer and the sex trafficker are out on their yacht having a good time? How can that be fair? And how can that be right? It's not. And he's struggling with this reality in his soul. Then beginning in verse 4, he begins to list what might be called the lifestyles of the rich and famous. God hate us. <laughs> 2021 edition. And then he goes and he says, look, they're comfortable. They have all the cash that they need. They're healthy. 
They're wealthy. It's the hakuna matata kind of lifestyle. No worries to the end of their days. Must be nice. I wish life was that good for me. It's a prosperity gospel of degradation. Live however you want to. Live however you want to. There is no God. You don't need to worry about that. You are the captain of your own ship, the God of your own destiny, and you can do whatever you want. And look, I am living proof, the world would say, or the God to say, I am living proof that there is no God. That's their quote. You see that in verse 11. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? They despise God and make fun of anyone sacrificing to follow Him. Where does this end up? The world is characterized by pride and their creativity to create even new ways, inventing new ways of being godless in their ever-expanding vanity fair. And the world is deceptive. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 it says, Therefore His people, God's people are turning to them and drink in their overflowing words. He spent time envying the ungodly, envying those who were far from God in the anxiety of comparison. Look at the anguish that he goes to. Look at verse 13. He says, Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. Have you ever been at this point? Have you ever wondered, is it worth it? Or why do I struggle? People who don't believe in God have it so much better and so much easier than myself. Do you know when we so oftentimes fall into this comparison? Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram. If somebody I saw said yesterday, you know what, if social media, if social media is the new God, then what we sacrifice at the altar of the new God is we offer a burnt offering of our time. It's a burnt offering of our schedule. And so oftentimes, as we compare to others, listen, everybody on Facebook has more cash. Everybody on Facebook has better lives. Everybody on Facebook has a better home, more fun and frequent vacations. They have better behaved and higher achieving children. They have better, they have better careers. They have more and better hair. <laughs> That sounds awesome until I show them my shampoo budget. <laughs> Man, I got more ice cream money than they do. <laughs> but you know how it is. They catch more and bigger fish. And sorry, Jeff, they don't root for the Washington Huskies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Too soon, too soon. <laughs> oh, goodness. Talk, talk to me about the Sooner game after the, after the service. Oh, man, we won, but oh, goodness, Lord help us. <laughs> but isn't that the way it is? It seems like everybody else is better than, you know, it's a temptation for pastors, too, especially in these days. 
You know, it's easy to, when pastors get together, sometimes they ask that glorious question when things are going good or that very difficult question, like the last couple of years. How many? (laughs) Are you talking about online views? Are we talking about, what are we talking about there? You can see this anxiety of comparison that draws your soul into an envy and darker places than you could have ever thought you would go to, and it leads to a bitterness of soul. I deserve more. I deserve better. It's a similar problem that Solomon explored in the book of Ecclesiastes. I encourage you to read the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the key phrase there is under the sun. That Solomon is investigating life under the sun. So for a moment, we're going to forget that there's anything besides the sun, anything beyond the sun. We're just going to investigate life under the sun. And he pours himself into a pursuit of all things pleasure, all things money, all things power, all things work. And he finds there is everything is futility. Everything is vanity of vanity, says the preacher, until he gets to chapter 12. And then he says, this is the end of man, to glorify God and to keep his commandments. That is our purpose in life. Bring glory to God. Now, how do you get out of this? How do you get out of of this relentless anxiety of comparison. Here's the key. Let me get out my phone again. I'm going to do something different. When you go to the photo app, (laughs) there are many options there. When you're on the photo app, I can do one of the things. I can take a picture of you. I've already smiled. (laughs) I could take a picture of you. It's a snapshot of a moment in time. It says, that's what's going on at a particular moment. What the psalmist is doing so far in the psalm, until we get to verse 15, is the psalmist has got his soul, his sight set in photo mode. At an instant in time, it looks like it's better to be away from, better to be godless, better to not serve God than to serve God. It's just easier. It works better because for 80 years you live and then you do your thing and then you die and it's over. However, beginning in verse 15, he switches gears and goes from video mode or from photo mode over to video mode. And he starts to say, what happens in this story from here? And he starts to say, you know what? This isn't about a picture of a moment in time. This is a storyline. And now let's go and let's watch the rest of the film. Let's watch the rest of the movie and see where this goes. If all you did as an Avengers fan was watch Infinity War, you might think that half of the universe was wiped out the instant that Thanos clicked his fingers once, and that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story, because after Infinity War, there is Endgame, and in Endgame, we figure out how all things are turned back to right. And that's what we see here in this passage. Up to now, he has stopped at the end of Infinity War. Now we're going to get to the end game. Point number three is this. Relentlessly refocus your heart 
on the unmatched delights of knowing God forever. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, he says, if I decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless until he switches now from photo mode to video mode. Going to watch the story. Going to remember this is a plot. There's a plot to this. Until, verse 17, I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. And as he gets through in the end of the psalm, he also understands his destiny as well. Where is this trajectory, this storyline going to end up? Here in this passage, we have two roads. We have the broad road that leads to destruction. Many there be that find it. And we have the narrow road that leads to life. And few there be that find it. And Jesus describes that road as difficult. It is a hard road, but it is a glorious road. Now, how does the psalmist, what is the, how does the psalmist refocus his heart on the unmatched delights of knowing God forever? Letter A is this. How do you do this? You keep going back to the cross. You keep going back to the cross. Now, where do I get the cross in the passage? This is the Old Testament. Look at verse 17 again. He says, until I entered the sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. Now, when he goes into the sanctuary, he's not going into an air-conditioned room with a pulpit and a piano or a guitar or those kinds of things and seats or pews. That's not where he went. When Asaph, the psalmist, goes into the sanctuary, he is going into a place of sacrifice. He's going into a very bloody scene, a bloody situation where he's going to the very place where the ancient Israelites would be sacrificing for their sins. In accordance with God's provision in the Old Testament, there would be a sacrifice on their behalf for their sins so that they would look at that and be reminded of the grace of God in his forgiveness of them. That God made a way for their sins to be forgiven and to experience the presence of Almighty God. And not only that, he was reminded of this animal is dying in my place. It is dying instead of me, paying for my sin's price. And were I not to have a relationship with God, that would be my eventual end. Why? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Now, that's the Old Testament, but all of that is pointing forward to a deeper and truer fulfillment, a deeper and truer reality. All of those sacrifices that Asaph saw have reached their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. That Jesus died on our behalf, God, for the godless, so that we might be brought to God. And that is the good news of the gospel. When you go to the cross, you realize that life is not just about 80 years or so and then life is snuffed out and then you're gone. That life is forever. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, receiving Him by faith, trusting in Him that He is the God become man, died on a cross, rose again from the grave, if you trust in Him, you will have everlasting life. 
And life isn't just about how much stuff I can acquire for 70 or 80 years and then somebody else gets it when I die. Life is about eternity in glory, in heaven, with joys at the right hand of God forevermore. The Bible says it like this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. 1 Peter chapter 3.18 says it like this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. When you go to the cross, you find the meaning of life. You switch from photo mode to video mode, and you realize that Christ died for the ungodly. He rose again from the grave, and that is the end of my story. That my story is not just about accumulating stuff in this life. My story is about Christ and eternity forever. And there's going to come a day when the tables will be turned that those who do not trust in Christ, this is the only joy and heaven, quote unquote, they will ever experience. Because at the end of life, what you do with Christ makes all of the difference for eternity. Hebrews says it like this in chapter 10. If we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire about to consume the adversaries. That's in the New Testament. And that's the reality of the situation. Look where this road ends. Listen, nobody goes to the cross and says, God, you're not being fair with me. It's impossible to spend much time with the cross where Jesus died and say, God's not being fair. In fact, God's being beyond what fair would ever do and that He gave His very life to redeem you and so that you can have an eternity with Him. When you see all of life within that perspective, then all of a sudden it relieves you of the anxiety of comparison. And you could say, who am I that God should do so much for me? I really don't deserve any of his goodness and grace towards me. Letter A, go to the cross. Go there often. Go there daily. Think a lot about Jesus who died on the cross for your sin. And it will it'll be a balm to your soul, like healing to your heart to help you as you deal with the anxiety of comparison. Letter B, triage your thoughts. Bring them into the captivity of Christ. Triage your thoughts and bring them into the captivity of Christ. We see that in verse 18 through 22, but I want you to look again at verses 21 and 22. He says, When I became embittered, he was bitter, and my innermost being was wounded. <laughs> I was stupid. <laughs> I love that. I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. Anybody ever go through a season of temporary insanity? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's kind of the picture there. He says, look, I was temporarily insane. As I walked through this and I pretended for a moment that God hasn't really blessed me and was trying to just look at things through the eyes of the world, through the eyes of a snapshot, through the eyes of a moment. He says, that was crazy, man. That what he's saying to us here is not every thought that you have is a good thought. 
And not every thought that comes through your head is a right thought or is a righteous thought or is a thought that you should keep and dwell on. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 says this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When these thoughts of unhealthy comparison come into your soul, this anxiety of comparison, that is a thought that you need to get out the handcuffs and arrest that moment. And take them straight to King Jesus and say, take this one to jail. Here's an anxiety, I'm casting it on you. Because I realize that thing that either the world, the flesh, or the devil is bringing to my mind is something that needs to be brought immediately into the obedience of Christ, into the kingdom of His Son. You know, I think that's, I'm convinced that's why, one of the reasons why we probably need to spend less time on social media, why we need to spend less time comparing to one another. It's because in those moments, we often have thoughts that are not pleasing to Christ, that are comparing ourselves to others, that are walking in this increasing level of anxiety in our souls. What do other people think about me? Why don't they like me enough? Or why do they have it better than I do? Take those thoughts, arrest them, bring them to Christ, into His captivity, and don't believe everything you think. Tell yourself what to think. And tell yourself what to think by filling your mind with truth. With the truth of Christ, His Word, His cross, His resurrection, His eternity, His glory, His forever. Triage your thoughts. Let her see. Catch the shepherd's hand. Catch the shepherd's hand. Look at verse 23. I love the picture here. Verse 23. Yet I am always with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then the second half of verse 23, you hold my right hand. Who's doing the holding in this psalm? Is it you and your strong grip on grace or is it grace's strong grip on you? Oh, friend, when I go through the anxiety of comparison, when I go through those dark moments of the soul, in those moments, it's not me that has a strong grip on grace. It's grace that has a really strong grip on me. And the truth of the gospel, the goodness of Jesus is this. For those who are in Christ Jesus, He will never cast out. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand. His grip of grace is on you. It's strong. Hold on to the hand. Grasp the hand. Catch the hand of the shepherd. No, he will not let go. Finally, letter D. Delight again in the presence of God. Delight again in the presence of God. In verse 20, 25 through the end of the chapter, that's what he's doing. He, he, he just delights in God. He says, who do I have in heaven but you? Nobody. And there's nothing on earth I desire but you. Do you see what happened in his heart? His desire at the, in the middle of the psalm was envious of what everybody else had. But now he has reached a point of transformation because he went to the cross, he went to the sanctuary, he went to Jesus, he went to the Lord. Something has changed in here. God has changed his desire to where he doesn't desire 
the temporary stuff of this world, what he desires is the very reality that will keep on giving forever. And that is God. Oh, the Lord can change your desires of your heart to give you a joy and delight in Him that can no longer be touched by the cares of this life and this world. It is offered to you. Will you receive it? Will you let God so work in your soul, in your heart, that He changes your loves toward the things that you love are now change to be set on God as the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. He says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Man, I'm going to get weak. I'm going to die. But God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. I have eternal life. Those who far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. That's the broad road. Verse 28, narrow road. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And he ends the psalm with this interesting phrase. So I can tell all you about all you do. What is he in the psalm with? He says, look, when God does this kind of heart surgery on you, and when you see that God is enough, Jesus is enough, and you realize that he has a abundant, never-ending, perfect supply, do you know what you start going and doing? You don't start going out and telling people how bad you have it. You go out and you start telling people, my goodness, Jesus is really good. God is really, really good. And friend, I want to tell you, he's exactly what you're longing for and looking for, and you're trying to fill your life and stuff with everything that this world can offer, and it leaves you empty all of the time. And the reason why is because it can't fill the infinite hole in your soul. That the only reality that can fill this gap in your heart is God. It's Christ and his joy and his presence and his forgiveness. Who can satisfy my soul like Jesus? There's nobody. Would you like to know him too? And your conversation now becomes not what you don't have, but the infinite grace that you do have in Christ and that he is more than enough to satisfy your soul. It's overcoming the anxiety of comparison. Why don't we spend a few moments in silence just meditating on what the Lord has told us and then we'll respond together here in a moment. Let's, let's be silent before the Lord together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your loving care upon us. That we'd see so fit that you would fill Asaph with your Holy Spirit so that he would write these words to us to show us that indeed no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man. Lord, there have been times in probably all of our lives where 
we have envied, where we had looked around, where we had thought, for some reason we're not getting what we deserve, or why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? Even maybe feeling like we should give up. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us in those moments when we are walking through those dark hours, those anxieties of, the, of comparison. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not look around, but to look up. Lord, to look at our Christ interceding for us in heaven. To look forward that, Lord, there is coming a day when we will meet you face to face and it will all be worth it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us strength now because of what our Savior has done for us. And Lord, help us in those moments of comparison when, when we're struggling, Lord, to triage our thoughts and, Lord, take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ and to fill our hearts and minds with truth that surely you are good to us. And, Lord, help us to run to the cross to see the infinite display of your goodness towards us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to cast these anxieties on you, knowing you care for us, and help us not just right now, but, Lord, help us on Thursday, help us on Saturday night, help us all throughout this week and every moment to apply these things to our lives. Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.